I'm Mike Wilner, and you're listening to Red, White, and Blue Jays. Swing and a drive! Welcome to Red, White, and Blue Jays, the podcast home of Blue Jays Fans UK, a group connecting Blue Jays fans around the UK and beyond and telling their stories. And now, here's the host of Red, White, and Blue Jays, Steve Hunter. Hi guys, welcome to another edition of Red, White and Blue Jays. Great to have you with us. I'm really thrilled uh, to be managed to track down today's guest. Uh, if you've listened to a lot of Jays um, radio broadcasts over many years, you will undoubtedly recognize the voice of Mike Wilner. Uh, Mike, super excited to be able to speak to you. Uh, thanks so much for finding time. I know we've we've tried a couple of dates in terms of getting you on uh, i know you're really busy in terms of your your job now at toronto star but uh, thanks so much for your time this afternoon oh it's my pleasure happy to be here uh, that's great first time into the uk have you done anything with anybody out this way before i don't think so um but my memory is not the best for certain things it's, okay. I know I've had some back and forth with people in the, in the UK before, uh, but I, I'm not sure I've ever done this. No. So, yeah, maybe. Great. Well, nice to be a first. Excellent. And have you ever been here at all? Do, do you know the UK scene? I mean, I was there once during the All-Star break. Um, so it was a very short trip. I can't remember what year uh might have been 13 or 14 uh or 15 uh so it was only like a four-day trip we went to london i took my two daughters um and it was uh it was quite the whirlwind but it was a it was a good time um the the biggest memory for me is that we were on a, a double-decker bus tour um and we were heading toward uh, toward London Bridge, and we were on another bridge a little farther. I don't know what direction it was, whether it was, I don't know. But uh, we're sitting up top outside, and I had my younger daughter on my lap, and she had this mane of huge curly hair, which she still does. But she leaned back on me, and my glasses got caught in her hair. And I said, you know, like I, I, I yelled, don't move. And she whipped her head around and they flew off oh, and they're in the river somewhere. So the River Thames. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, funny enough, I'm going to London on uh, the weekend. So I'll, uh, I'll go yeah, and have a look for the you. River for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a memory. Well, uh, hopefully, well, we'll talk a little bit about the UK scene uh, towards the end, because uh, I'd be just interested to, to get your thoughts on that. But today is for me anyway, having listened to you for many many years and i think a lot of the uk fans here obviously we we struggle with the time zone difference so a lot of evening obviously the evening games are midnight plus over here so a lot of my experience of listening to the jays was listening to you uh doing your broadcast over many many years and listening to blue jays talk and all that sort of stuff I'd love to sort of rewind before all of that and how you first got into this industry. Was it something as you were 
uh, going through school that you always had a passion that you wanted to get into to media and sports journalism. Was that something that was birthed at an early age for you or was it something you just sort of fell into? And uh, yeah, you're nodding. Yeah. So uh, yeah, <laughs> let, it, let's hear the story. I mean, it's a long story, so I'll, I'll try to give you the highlights, but um, it was never something that I planned on going into in you know high school or, or anything like that. I was going to be a lawyer or I was going to be an accountant or, or something, And um, but I always enjoyed listening to the broadcasts. I always, you know, I, I had uh, one of those speaker, there, there were these flat little speakers that you could buy at Radio Shack and put under your pillow at night when the Blue Jays were in the West Coast or um, I'm assuming ends of games or whatever here, uh, I would go to sleep listening to ball games uh, that way. Um, I always um, really admired the broadcasters. And back, you know, when I was growing up, um, there were only two games a week on television. So radio was the real conduit to, to the team and, and uh, radio was, you know, was king back then. Um, never really thought that I would do anything like that. And then um, the first week that I was at uh, school at the University of Toronto, they had this, what they called a club day where uh, you go into this big hall and there are all these booths up and here's all the extracurricular stuff you can do and clubs you can join and whatever. And the radio station had a booth and I thought that was kind of cool. So I went up and I talked to them and um, they, they brought me on to do like sports casts three mornings a week, um, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday from nine at, at nine, 10, 11 and noon. Um, the, the, uh, the first sports cast I ever did the first story that first Monday was when Ben Johnson gave his gold medal back in Seoul huh, wow. after he had won it. Yeah. The, yeah. the Friday night before that was something. Um, so that led to working on the university uh, live broadcasts of, of hockey and basketball and football. And uh, eventually, well, not even eventually that summer after my first year, I, I decided I wanted to try to give baseball a shot because that's my always the first love. Um, okay. I wound up getting a volunteer position with the Welland Pirates, who were a short season A ball in a league that no longer exists. Um, UL Washington, who Blue Jays fans of a certain vintage will remember as the Kansas City Royal shortstop in the mid 80s was the manager of that team. They had Tim Wakefield on that team as a third baseman wow. um, before he became a knuckleballer. So I did that. And then I went back to school and I worked for the radio station, did a whole bunch of things, uh, wound up catching the eye of Peter Gross, who was the sports director at 680 News. At the time, he invited me to come in and audition for a job. And uh, I did. He was very impressed, but didn't have a position for me. So I went, this is already 1994, and I went uh, in 95 to go work for the Hardware City Rockcats of the AA Eastern League. Uh, I got the job through this um, organization called Professional Baseball Employment Opportunities, which at the 94 winter meetings was there for the first time and has since grown into this huge thing. And it's fantastic and giving a lot of people their start 
few in broadcasting, but a lot in baseball. Um, and the Rockcast job was one of only three broadcasting jobs that were available there, and, and I managed to get it. Um, and then in the middle of the Rockcast season, 680 News called and said, we have an opening. You want to come back to Toronto and be a sportscaster here? And I was like, well, um, yeah, you're going to pay me. They're not. Um, and the, the, the job in New Britain, Connecticut, was not at all what had been um, uh, advertised to me when I got it. So I went back to 680, worked there for a bunch, uh, six years, and then Scott Ferguson, who had been the pre- and post-game show host on Blue Jays broadcast, left the fan because the Blue Jays were no longer on the radio station. So he went to Headline Sports to, to still be with them and be on the broadcast and do the things he used to do. And the job covering the Blue Jays opened up on the fan. They called me because they remembered, or Scott Metcalf, who later became the news director at 680, who's an absolutely wonderful man. Um, one of the greatest people I've ever met in, in this business. There are a few. He's outstanding. Um, he called me. He remembered that I had interned at the fan in 1993 for a month or two and that I was really into baseball. And eventually I got that job. Uh, Nelson Millman hired me. And the next year, the Blue Jays, um, the next year, Rogers bought the Blue Jays and Rogers bought the fan and brought the Jays back to the fan. And all of a sudden, I was on the broadcast with Tom Cheek and Jerry Howard, and it was insane. Um, so yeah, that's the that's the I don't know eight minute version of the seventy five minute story, but yeah. you know that, that's just just what happened. Yeah. Uh, yeah, right place, right time, do good work, impress people, and keep getting opportunities. Yeah, absolutely, doors open. So you said your your first love is baseball. Was that something you played yourself at high school? Yeah. Okay. So we didn't have a baseball team in my high school, uh, but I played uh, elsewhere uh, in Toronto in the Bond Park, uh, had a league, uh, played there. But yeah, I played all the way up from being a little kid, for sure. It's, uh, and, and up until the pandemic, the, you know, the, the old guy league that I was in nice. um, shut down for 2020 and still hasn't started up again yet. So <laughs> hopefully it will at some point. Nice to get on it. It's funny enough because the one little thing we have in common is that we're, we're born in the same year. Um, oh, all right. So 1970 babies. Uh, My beard so is probably whiter than yours. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah, so there's a few things that, in terms of your timeline, uh, so my vis first visit to see the Jays was in 94. Uh, literally about four days, four or five days, I can't quite remember now, before the strike. So oh. I... I saw them literally by my fingernails, fell in love with the game, and uh, it's been Blue Jays ever, ever since. So we, yeah, it's so just interesting your, your your timeline in terms of what, what's happened with you. Yeah, I don't remember the first, I don't remember whether I went to a game in 77. I know I did in 78. Okay. Um, but I, I probably did in 77. I can't remember. But um, the first game I covered was in 1988. Uh, in September with the University of Toronto radio yep. station. So, uh, yeah, so this is my 35th season, which That's is crazy. Oh, the Blue Jays. And I'm insane. glad you you stayed in love with it since they took it away from you 
so soon after you got to see it. Uh, well, the, the crazy thing was, so apart from the strike, so when everything came back in 95, obviously baseball here is a, a minority sport by a long way. We, at that point in time, had no TV coverage. Um, obviously, internet services or internet wasn't around. So the only way I could keep up with how the Jays were doing was to go down to our local news agents on a Saturday where they did an international version of USA Today and they do it right. just once a week. So I would just go down and get get the paper and just try and cover and find out a little bit about what was happening. So, yeah, it was it was very minimal stuff in those early days. Uh, but thankfully, you know, we're in a completely different world now, which has made all the difference to to fans over on this side of the pond. So yeah, yeah the just one, the one positive of the internet happening. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, totally. So just in terms of your exhibition stadium memories, mm-hmm. uh, I, so prior to '77, did you have a team that obviously wasn't the Jays? Were you an Expos fan or anything like that, it, or were you just too young to really pick up on it? I think for the most part, I was too young. I, I like the first real memory of baseball I have is the world series between the Yankees and the Dodgers. I don't know if it was 77 or 78. Um, I guess it must've been 77 if it was before. Cause I remember going to a ball game, even though my memory of that game is false and what happened to it yeah. uh, in it. Um, so I, I like, I remember Roy white who was a center fielder for the Yankees uh, and those world series teams um Thurman Munson that sort of thing but I wasn't a a fan of them it was just the the that's the first memory so I don't like remember the big red machine which you know you would think would be a big deal um because I was I was five and six when Cincinnati won those back-to-back world series Mm. um I have an old comic book um that I bought later as a teenager um it was like the the kid who beat the Oakland A's, and I didn't realize why it was a big deal to beat the Oakland A's. This this uh, comic book from the early seventies because they had won three World Series in a row in seventy two, three, and four. Um, so I didn't know any of that stuff. So uh, I didn't have a team prior to the Blue Jays, which is probably good because um, there was no switch over when the Jays got the team in seventy seven. I was just very. Um, immediately into that group and like Rick Bassetti, I think was one of my favorite players. He was their center fielder in the, in the very early days. Um, and I really got into it probably in 81 or two. Um, I had this base, the, the first baseball simulation game I had was called status pro and uh, very rudimentary thing, but um I replayed the entire 162 games from the 1980 season. So that got me intimately familiar with that group of Blue Jays and set yeah. me off on a lifetime love of both those things. Amazing. Great, great memories. You're listening to Red, White and Blue Jays, the podcast of Blue Jays Fans UK. Exhibition Stadium, what's your fondest memory of that place and the worst memory of that place? I have so many memories of the X. I mean, the first 11 or 12 years of my baseball fandom was spent there. 
Um, I remember, you know, I, I went to opening day in 1982 by myself. I couldn't find anybody to go with me. <laughs> uh, it was a miserable day. Uh, it was a it was Good Friday. It was an afternoon game, but it was rainy and horrible and cold. Uh, a miserable day to the extent that Dave Steep did not pitch because the Jays were worried that the game was going to be rained out. So they started Mark Babcock and he gave up like seven runs in the first inning and they lost, I want to say, 14 to five to Milwaukee. Um, and I was sitting right behind the first base dugout by myself like two rows behind and there was nobody there on opening day because it was such a horrible day mm-hmm. um but it, it was amazing i loved it uh i remember i remember the vendors with the boiled footlong hot dogs that were wonderful and terrible all at the same time uh the grandstand which you know for for some of it had the only uh seats in the ballpark that were actually facing home plate um yeah. You know, you would get your one or two dollar tickets from Dominion uh, and it was general admission. You just pile in and, and, and go um, and you couldn't sit in the first seven or eight rows because you couldn't see the field from there because of the fence, because it was not, you know, the place was not designed for baseball. Uh, I remember seeing the back of Alvis Woods a whole bunch. I can still see that number 20. Um, he played left field a whole lot when I was there in the early days. Um, I was there for Charlie Moore's Blue Jays debut, who I'm sure nobody else remembers, but you know they got him from Milwaukee. He was a catcher, and um, Milwaukee was a really good team at the time. So this was a this was a big thing, and he homered uh, in it. Or I remember him homering in his debut. I'm not 100 percent sure it actually happened or not, but um, but I remember being there for that. I was there for the triple that. Uh, bounced over um, some center fielder's head because he lost it in the fog or something. <laughs> um, uh, I, I was there for the last game that the Blue Jays won in 1987, the Saturday afternoon wow. uh, game before the seven-game losing streak. I remember vividly after they won that game seeing Juan Beniquez, who was a um, – you know, utility player, bench guy for that team. I remember watching him dance on top of the dugout in celebration. Can't remember why, but uh, it, it felt like that was, you know, that was it. The Jays were going to win the, the, the division, go back to the playoffs. Um, I was there for game seven of the 1985 American League Championship Series in like in the grandstand, but in deep center field, probably like the third or fourth section from the far west end of the grandstand where the game was just really, you know, a rumor from there. You could barely see it. Uh, But I could see Jim Sundberg hit that triple and I could still see it off the hit off the top of the right field fence. Jesse Barfield backed up like he was going to catch it. He thought he was going to catch it and it hit the top of the fence and bounced back into play for the three run triple that, that uh, really took the Jays out that year. And I remember, you know, amazingly getting to go into the press box and getting to go into the clubhouse and sitting in the dugout, and, uh, 
uh, covering games in 88 and 89 for University of Toronto Radio. Um, I met Len Bramson there, who is it, and that's a name not a lot of people know, but an, a central figure to Blue Jays broadcasting. He was the guy who ran the, at the time, the Telemedia Sports Network. He was a guy who hired Tom Cheek uh, and started it all. Uh, and I, you know, we sort of struck up conversations in the press box when I was just starting out, just some 18 year old dumb kid. I had no clue who he was. Um, and like the fifth or sixth time we talked, he said, do you want to come into the broadcast booth and meet Tom and Jerry? I was like, yes, absolutely. I would like to do that. Um, so that was amazing. Meeting them was incredible. Um, and you know, then 14 years later, getting to work with them was just, just insane. Yeah. Child, childhood dreams stuff, isn't it? It's, yeah. You know, extraordinary. So what, when, when you moved across to the Sky Dome, what was the, what was the atm atmosphere and the appetite in Toronto to go to this now purpose-built, albeit municipal ballpark, you know, there was other things happening there. Was there, was there a, a big momentum in the city that, you know, was tangible about this is now starting to be, you know, a serious ball club? I mean, it, it had started to be a serious ball club in 1983, right? Uh, when they were in first place at the end of August. Um, and then, you know, Joey McLaughlin gets blamed for a lot of the 83 collapse, but they just weren't ready yet. Uh, and, and the bullpen was really not good. Um, but, uh, but, you know, from 83... And then 84, the Tigers ran away with everything. They would start the season 35 and five. But what a lot of people don't remember is that in the first week of June, the Blue Jays had cut Detroit's lead to three and a half games in the division, which was crazy when you consider the, the start that that team got off to. Uh, but that was a, a wire to wire year for the Tigers. And then they won in 85 and, and 87, they came so close. And, and 88, I, I think they didn't get eliminated till the last weekend of the season. Um, and then when, you know, the, this whole time Skydome is being built and we're getting ready for it. Right. I remember being at the last game at the X, they were playing the white Sox. Uh, George Bell hit a walk-off home run in extra innings. That was the last thing that ever happened at exhibition stadium. And that was super cool. Um, and then they went on the a road trip and the, the, uh, uh, that famous series in Boston happened, right? This was after the 12 and 24 start. Jimmy Williams was out. Cito Gaston had taken over. They had started to play well. Uh, they went to Boston. And I think in the first game of the series, Junior Felix hit an inside the park grand slam, which was crazy. And in the last game of the series, they came back from 10, nothing down in the seventh inning and won, uh, which was even more crazy. And then they came home to Skydome to open it up. Um, and I was there for that game too. And I remember walking in, um, for the first time and thinking this place just looks like a giant toy. It was just so <laughs> giant and bright and like, the, you know, the fence was, the wall was so blue and the, the yeah. um, it just looked like a toy. 
And it it was at the time people were talking about it like it was the eighth wonder of the world. You know, nobody yeah. noticed that it was so concretey and and all that stuff. Um, but it was a just a fantastic place. I mean, again, Exhibition Stadium was a dump, but it was our dump and we loved it. Um, Skydome was a whole other, a whole other thing. And, you know, Fred McGriff hits a home run off the Hard Rock Cafe the first week. I remember in that first game, Bob Brenly must have been in his first at bat early in the game, hit uh, a drive to deep left center that got caught on the warning track. Um, I thought off the bat, it was gone at the exit would have been gone. Um, and we started to think, Oh, maybe this, this is going to, you know, be a little bit of a pitcher's park. Uh, it certainly isn't, but I, I definitely remember that shot by Brenly and thinking that should have been a home run and it wasn't close. Um, and you know, it was just, it was such a magical, wonderful place. Um, you know, as part of a, a magical season where the Blue Jays came from 12 and 24 to start the year and wound up winning the AL East. Um, and I do remember, you know, two, the, the two other things that really struck me during that first series, the first ever series, uh, the Brewers were in town, um, the five minute rain delay. I don't remember which game it was, a second or third game where it just started to rain and they started to close the roof. And it got to a point where the roof closing the way it does, it was pouring, but only over home plate. So the catcher, the batter, and the umpires were the only ones who were getting wet. So Richie Garcia, who was the umpire, a home plate umpire, said, we're going to just wait. And they moved three feet back where it was dry <laughs> and let the rain pour, let the roof close. Um, so that that little delay. And then in one of the games, Tom Treblehorn, who was a manager of the uh, Brewers at the time, um, had Chuck Krim pitching a right handed reliever, took him out, moved him to first, brought in a lefty for a batter or two. Might have been Dan Plesak. I can't remember who it was. And then he brought Chuck Krim back in to face the right hander which is something that Whitey Herzog did a lot in St. Louis in the mid eighties with um, Tal Worrell and Ricky Horton, but it wasn't something I'd ever seen before live. And so, you know, I, I used the line that he had Chuck Krim relieve himself on the mound. Uh, and that was that, that was amazing strategical move that I had never seen. So that stuck yeah. with me that first series at Skydome, but it was just, a, it was incredible. And then the playoffs that year, you know, Jose Canseco went into the 500 level in the ALCS in 89. He was the first one ever to do it. Um, it was, it was just an incredible place. It still is. It's, it's, yeah. it's lost its luster uh, quite a bit. I think it's now the seventh oldest stadium. I know it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. yeah. It's mad, but it's a great place. Yeah. Are you, are you liking the, uh, the plans in terms of what they're going to do to it over the, because they've talked a lot about the hundred level, haven't they? In terms of turning the seats towards more home plate, because at the moment you sort of look out into the middle of the, the outfield yeah. sitting down there. Do you think that's going to help? Is that is that going to make it feel more baseball like? I mean, I don't, I don't think it doesn't feel baseball like. I think that a lot of the complaints that people had over the years about it were more so complaints about 
not being in the playoffs for 20 years. And the, sure. you know, the fact that Camden Yards was built right after Skydome was built and, and sort of changed the direction that everything was moving in. Um, and Camden Yards is gorgeous. Don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, but place. we needed a place with a retractable roof. Absolutely. Um, or a roof. And so this is, it's, this is the, the best thing that they could have come up with in 1983 or whatever. Um, but I, I do think that moving the bullpens and changing the dimensions of the ballpark and making it a little more um, quirky in the outfield is going to be fun. Um, I think that, you know, the ideal thing is still to have like a Milwaukee or a Seattle type stadium here in Toronto. And I think eventually we'll get there, but I don't, I mean, it's only 30 years old, right? 33 years old. Um, it's not falling apart or anything like that. I don't think there's, you know, if Rogers, God bless them. If they want to spend money and build a whole new ballpark, please go ahead. I don't want, I don't want to pay for a new ballpark. And that's, you know, that's what winds up happening. And, and mm-hmm. I think at least in Canada, uh, communities are starting to wake up to the fact that we don't need to subsidize um, these places. So, and there's no need, there's no yeah. need for a new ballpark. Oh, I love, I love it there. I think it, it's, as you say, it's got its own history. It's, yeah. it's, it's uniqueness uh, in terms of what's happened there. And it's got some phenomenal memories uh, in that place. And I was just uh, going to ask you a little bit about particularly the sort of 2015 big game. What was that like for you being there on that night? Uh, crazy series in terms of losing the first two in that series having to go down to Texas to pull it back, coming back for game five, and then everything that unfolded that evening. What was that like being on a broadcast team, trying to unpick what was some of the weirdest baseball moments that any of us will ever see, I'm sure? Yeah, I mean, the the, the seventh inning of game five in 2015 was, and and I think will forever be, the most insane inning of baseball ever played period, you know, given the, the stakes uh, and all the, the craziness that happened, um, you know, start back from Russell Martin hitting Shinsu Chu's bat. Something none of us had ever seen before. Um, the umpiring crew ultimately got it right, but mishandled it in real time when Dale Scott came out and called timeout as the runner was scoring and, um, and I, I talked to Dale about that on my podcast a couple of months ago. And, and he said, yeah, I shouldn't, shouldn't have done that. But ultimately, whether I called time or not, there wasn't going to be able to be a playmate on the runner coming home. So that's why they decided to let the run score. And he's right, you know. Um, and then the, the delay because fans were, you know, it was a powder keg, really was. And it felt like um, it got scary for a few mm. moments there. There, we were kind of close to a riot. It almost felt like, yeah. um, and then, you know, three straight errors to open the bottom of the inning. I mean, that's as as instant karma as you're going to get, sure. I think for for uh, for baseball. 
and the Jose Bautista hitting that home run was, it was incredible. And, you know, Jerry Howarth and Joe Siddle and I were sitting up there in the booth and it was Jerry's inning and he was taking us through it all. And we discussed the, the, uh, uh, the, the Martin Chu thing to death and trying to figure it out while there was very, very long delay. Um, and, uh, you know, the biggest memory I did obviously did not see the bat flip. I saw, I was watching the ball yeah. and, um, didn't see the reaction or anything. Ryan Goins at third base jumping into the air, or Batista throwing a bat away or anything like that. But, uh, uh, the way the booth aligned was I was in the left corner. Siddle was in the middle and Jerry was in the right corner and, when Bautista hit that home run, Joe Siddle grabbed my right arm and just held it tight. And, you know, I thought he was going to tear my arm off, to be honest with you. But it was just such an incredible moment. The place shook. It was um, it was amazing to be there. I can't imagine what it would have been like to be in the, the actual bowl with the fans. Um, but it was, you know, from our vantage point, just yeah. phenomenal. Yeah, yeah, unforgettable. And it's, you know, one of those great moments, you know, for an entire generation, that's their Joe Carter walk-off home run, right? Totally. Yeah, and yeah. And, and and for people like me who have seen, you know, the 1993 World Series, I've watched reruns and, you know, you try and savor the moment. And when I came in 94, there was still a lot of Joe Carter sort of memorabilia in all the shops as I was walking down to the ballpark and, and you get a sense of, the the enormity of that moment but of course i never experienced it i never saw it live so for for me watching in uh into that game and of course here it was like 2 30 in the morning um so it was very very late uh but just uh, yeah i think for me i'm watching lots of different sports here i think it was the most intense moment in sport that i had watched and i think it was just the sickness i felt of what had happened in the top of the sevens, I think we can't lose on that moment. That cannot right. be the defining moment of this season, you know. Uh, so no, for it to be- Elvis Andrews for making sure that that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, bless his soul. Yeah, so <laughs> ama- amazing moments. Um, just just tell me a little bit about uh, Jerry, because uh, I, I know obviously he's um, not so well at the moment. What, no, he's what- fine. He's doing well now, is he? I, I, okay. I, know, he ha- I know he hadn't been well, um, but um, in terms of working alongside him, what was that like? I'm sure that was a pure joy. Jerry, I mean, I worked with him for, uh, uh, now see, now you make me try to do math in my head. Um, <laughs> 16, yeah, from 02 to 17. Um, you know, I... I I learned a lot uh, from Jerry. There's no question about that. He uh, he's unabashed in his love for the game, mm-hmm. um, and very meticulous uh, in the things he does and the, the things he wants to to talk about on a broadcast. Um, so it was it was a, a real experience uh, being able to to sit there on on. Like I gave you the booth alignment, but that changed a million times over the years. So I got to sit sit on every side uh, wow. of him, um, and um, you know everyone who listened to him absolutely loved him. There's there's no question about that. 
Um, I got to work with with a lot of really wonderful people in that booth. Um, Tom Cheek stands heads and shoulders above any mm. of them. Uh, and, you know, we're talking, I don't know when this is, when you're going to put this out, but we're talking the day after his birthday. Uh, ah, Tom, didn't know that. Yeah, this will go out yeah. pretty shortly. Okay, so June 13th was his birthday. He would have been 83. Uh, only got to work with him for two and a half years, but that was the most impactful of anything in my career. Wow. Um, he was incredible. Alan Ashby was incredible. Six years in the booth with him, mm. just a salt of the earth human being. And Joe Siddle, the same. You know, I, I've been extraordinarily lucky with people that I've, I've managed to sit mm. beside in that booth. Yeah, fan- fantastic stuff. Just just before we finish the broadcasting bit, um, before we talk about the Jays, because uh, I'd, like, I'd like to get on there and I'm conscious of time. No, whatever. I got all kinds of time. That's, that's, that's cool. Thank you. In terms of um, Blue Jays talk, there were some very comedic moments as I was listening in late in the early hours of our night here of um, some poor, poor, poor phoning guys who, you know, were with you for a short moment and then were dismissed. Uh, how much fun was that for you hosting that show in terms of, because I, I remember I, I always phoned in on a couple of occasions. thought I just don't want to make a fool of myself, quite frankly. Um, but what was that like taking calls from callers where you got all sorts being thrown at you? Some, you know, some great moments and some uh, calls that were perhaps a bit more testy. What, what was that like as, a, as a, a host to manage that dynamic? Well, I mean, you know, you, you, the, the thing that's important to remember is like uh, when you're on immediately after a game, people's emotion often overrides their rationality. And I've sort of felt like, you know, it's funny. I grew up, I don't know if I grew up listening, but when I, when I was listening to talk radio um, before I was on it, I would often hear, um it used to be really 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 caller driven they've moved away from that now but um but i would often hear a caller call into a show and present his or her thesis statement as the you know this is what my call is going to be about and it was absolutely preposterous (laughs) and had no basis in truth at all and the host would just go "Uh uh-huh and allow them to continue. And I thought, I'm never going to do that. Uh, that's, that's insane. Um, so I was, I mean, I always felt like, and I know this is a crazy idea now in 2022, <laughs> but I always felt like the truth was important. Uh, <laughs> and I felt like, if you want to present your opinion, you're more, you're more than welcome to, but it needs to be based in facts and you need to be able to defend it. So it, it, it is really funny, this reputation that I seem to have as cantankerous or belligerent or combative, when really all I did was when someone would call up and say something ridiculous the first thing I would say is, why do you feel that way? Or, you know, tell me how that works or something. Just explain yourself, defend the reasons that you think this way. And I think a lot of people who are angry just wanted me to agree with them. Right. And 
you know, and I won't, first of all, if you're making stuff up or trying to read a player's mind or telling me that this guy doesn't care or, you know, or this guy sucks, I'm not going to go, yeah, yeah, he sucks. I will say, yeah, he went over four today. Hitting's really hard, you know, um, and, and I just tried to, to, um, keep the keep it like a human centered thing remind people that these are people out there that are for the most part doing their best uh and that this is a really really difficult game to play and a really difficult game to uh win at and an impossible game to master no one has ever mastered the game of baseball um and that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way because a lot of people just want their uh, their anger validated and um, unless there was a real reason to validate it I wasn't going to do that sure well it was always very entertaining listening to you Mike uh, and as oh. I say some of the most formative nights I've spent listening to the Jays was listening to you and so yeah always always valued those 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 uh, programs and listening into to what you had to bring and and I think I yeah and I think as, as I said at the beginning you know for us guys here in the UK often often most of our experience listening to the Jays is by radio. Well, it is for me because you know I'm getting old now and I can't do do nights watching the Jays all the time. So, lying in bed with me the earpods in, listening to the radio is a, it's such an important media uh, for us to have. And uh, you know, you've been certainly part of my formative years of of listening to uh, and learning about the Jays over the years. So, thank you for that. Let's just um, let's dial in as we come to a close. We haven't even talked about our current team. Uh, just <laughs> broad brush. How positive are you for the 2022 Toronto Blue Jays? I mean, it's a it's a great team. And I, I think they're they've been showing that over the last little while. Um, you know, even and even in the start of the season, I think that um, it's really easy to forget what 162 is. And it feels like a lot of baseball watchers, even the, the more avid fan, even the, the talking heads, people get paid to talk about this, forget what 162 games is <laughs> every year. Right. Uh, I mentioned 1989 before where they started 12 and 24 and they wound up winning the division that year. Um, we've seen it twice over the last seven years where the Jays have overcome eight game deficits in the standings in August and in September, where, you know, now in mid June, people are saying are handing the division to the Yankees because, you know, it's June and they've got an eight game lead. And, uh, um, and that's crazy. But, mm. um, you know, then the Yankees may be having one of those special years and, and we'll see as, as it plays out. But even if they do, the Blue Jays will be in the playoffs um, almost assuredly. Uh, and they'll be able to do some damage because, you know, they've got a, a fantastic top of the rotation and a really, really good back of the bullpen. And all the stuff in between doesn't really matter in the playoffs. You know, yeah. I, some of those Yankees dynasty teams in the late 90s only really used three relief pitchers the entirety of the playoffs uh, in any significant situation. So you can do that because there are so many off days and uh, whatever it's it's an entirely different beast but you know the fact that the in the season with 30 games in 31 days after a short spring training they played 25 
26 of their first 35 games against teams that were playoff teams last year. And they came out of that over 500, a game over, whatever. They came out of it over 500. That is an astonishing achievement that not many teams would be able to do no matter how good they are. And I think that we just kind of looked at that and was like, oh, well, they're underperforming, which is crazy. Uh, And we've seen now as how the schedule has opened up, how much they've started, how much better they've started to play, how much they've started to hit. Um, You know, I believe right now, after we, you know, so many people complained after the first month that they weren't hitting, are they ever going to hit? Maybe they just can't hit. Maybe last year was a mirage. Um, Don't get me started on that. But now they're leading the league, right? They're leading the league in batting average and leading the league in on-base percentage scoring yep. crap the runs and the run differential has fixed itself right um as we speak over the last week and a half they've had wins of like 12 3 11 1 10 1 8 nothing 7 nothing um and now they've got one of the easiest schedules in baseball the rest of the way some 18 games left against baltimore yeah. um and and um you know this is this is a really 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 good team and uh, it's, it's got a chance to be that for a long time, which is incredibly exciting. Yeah. You know, from 1983 to 93, the Jays had 11 straight years where they had a winning record. Um, and I think more often than not, won like 89 games or more. Uh, and that was an incredible time. And I think we're headed back into something like that. Mm. And you, and you think in terms of the age of the players that we've got, I mean, these guys are essentially babies in, in MLB standards. Yeah. Um, and Manoa, I mean, Noah had an, again, another Sterling outing last night. How, how good is he? I mean, look, I'm someone who, when they called him up last May after 35 innings in the pros, I thought they were nuts. I, this, this doesn't work. It doesn't happen like that. Baseball doesn't work that way. To his credit, he has been far, far better than anyone could have expected. You know, they're talking, uh, he's, he's getting, it's, it's like Bo Bichette in 2019, 2018, 2019, when he came up, all of a sudden, after his first couple of weeks, he's in conversations with Joe DiMaggio and Ted Williams and, you know, some of these all-time greats. Same thing with Manoa through his, his you know, this eight, 18 and three or 17 and three, whatever he is. Um, his ERA is uh, crazy low. It's the second lowest of any Blue Jay through this point in the season. And um, he's never lost at home. Uh, and he just goes out and he dominates. And what's funny is that you know, you look at the raw numbers, he's very pedestrian against left-handed batters and just right-handed, just myrtleizes right-handed hitters. So the last few starts of his, you've seen these teams stack lefties against him, say, oh, okay, we know his weakness, right? We'll just throw seven left-handed batters against him and we'll be able to beat him. And he has risen to the occasion and he has dominated them too. And uh, it's it's really something. You know, he's he's a bulldog. He's an old-school horse who can throw 110, 120 pitches. Um and he seems like such a wonderful, wonderful kid too, which is fantastic. Mm. Now, if he's going to be 
um, the focal point of that pitching rotation for the next seven to 10 years, um, he's is the kind of guy that you want to have there. So mm. uh, I'm, I'm just beyond thrilled with what he's been able to do like a year and a fortnight into his big league career. Yeah, no, it has been an amazing uh, uh, entry into the team and, and into major league generally. And I, I think, you know, he is at the moment, the one player in terms of the starting pitches, you think, you know, we're almost guaranteed to win when he's on the mound. I, I know, I know, you know, there's a, there's a school of thought, isn't there in terms of, or do the wins for starting pitches actually mean anything? Um, I heard Kevin Barker saying today that actually for starting pitches, particularly at the top um, of the rotation, that is an important stat because it, it shows something. I think when you get down the rotation, it, it's perhaps not quite so important. Um, but yeah, exciting, exciting stuff. Yeah, I think pitcher wins are, are kind of illusory uh, yeah. because, you know, I, I've seen a guy throw eight shutout innings and not get a win, right? Because yeah. his team doesn't score or the bullpen blows it or whatever. I think when when you talk about pitching wins for top-of-the-rotation guys, um, that's more because they tend not to leave it to the bullpen, right? They'll go seven or eight. In the old days, they would go nine. Uh, but still, those, those things can be taken away. But I, I think, you know, when I talked to Manoa in spring training, and he said, he was talking about the rotation. And he said, I think we have five guys in this rotation who can each win 20 games. And then he quickly corrected himself. And he said, I don't mean they get 20 wins. I mean, the team wins 20 times when they're on the mound. So that's how Manoa looks at it. If the team wins a game that he starts, that's a win for him. And yeah. I think that, that that's how pitchers uh, are starting to look at it now that most guys are expected only to go six innings. Mm, very good. How do we solve the catching position? We've got three catchers who are, well, obviously Danny's out at the moment, but, um, you know, when he comes back, has been probably performing, certainly with the bat, better than most people had anticipated. Um, Alejandro Kirk is still doing what he does. And, of course, we've just had the arrival of Marino. Where where do you see that one going long-term? I mean, is it... Are one of them up for a trade? Do you think is that likely where the Jays are going to go with that? I don't know if it's likely. It, it feels like I know a lot of people are saying that's what they should do. For me, it, it, it has felt like these things tend to work themselves out, um, which is, I know, not much of an answer. Um, but I think when Jansen comes back, Moreno goes down for now. Yeah. Um, and then we'll see what happens. You know, catchers are fragile. Not that they're not super tough and they take a beating back there, but they they absolutely get hurt a lot. Um, so it's a great thing to have three great ones. Um, I think there may be a point in time where you get to um, <clears throat> where Kirk is your primary DH, although he's so good back there too. You know, you he want is. him behind yeah. the plate. He's improved so much. Uh, Moreno is ridiculous behind the plate. Uh, and Danny Jansen is excellent as well. Uh, I can see Kirk DHing five or six times a week and catching once, and Jansen catching four times, and Moreno catching twice, and um, eventually down the road. You would think at some point something's got to give, and you decide either who you want to keep the most or who you can get the most for. 
and you make that trade, but you don't trade one just to trade one, just to clear a log jam, because you know the day after you do that, the other one breaks its hand, right? Um, so I think that if you can get a significant return, like team-changing significant return for one of them, then you kind of have to. Um, but for now, there's no urgency at all. You just sit back and be thrilled that there are like five good hitting catchers in major league baseball and you've got three of them. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's an ex exciting problem to have having too many good players on your, on your roster and Charlie's got some juggling to do. How do you feel he's managing the team generally? Uh, you know, there's always jury's a little bit out in terms of Charlie's um, role. Uh, I think, you know, you've got the, the, the perennial haters and you've got other guys who actually probably appreciating what he's doing. How, how do you feel he's managing everything going on at the moment? Yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm not sure why he is the lightning rod that he is um, and why so many people have such a big issue with Charlie Montoyo. Look, he, the truth is he is doing exactly 1000% what he was hired to do. Um, keep things positive in the room be that calm presence, um, communicate well, manage up as well as managing down, um, and put the plan that the front office has into action. Uh, he's doing it exactly. You know, people get angry with Charlie Montoyo when Vladimir Guerrero Jr. gets a day off. That's just stupid. Um, you know, Charlie's not making that decision. Um and it feels like, you know, a part of it, too, is that the first, I don't know, 50 games of the season this year were one run games. Yeah. So you want, you know, fans want the best relievers in every game in the best situation. They want nobody ever getting a day off. They played, as I mentioned, 30, 30 games in 31 days. Right now, they're in a run of 39 games in 41 days. People need time off. You know, there are fans who are furious that Alejandro Kirk is sitting after he just caught for a day game after he caught the night before. You have to. There's a reason the catchers hit 210 after the All-Star break, right? And you don't want that to happen to, to, to these guys. They need time off and they need, you know, there still are two Jays who've played every day this season, um, which just doesn't, nobody plays 162 anymore. Um, so, yeah, I have zero issue. Occasionally, Charlie will do something that's confounding. Fine. Like the, the whole bunting with two strikes thing, I will never agree with. Um, but he's really pulled back on the amount of times he's asked people to sacrifice, which is wonderful. Um, but, you know, again, you can't. You, you just can't. Tim Mesa, Adam Simber, and Jordan Romano cannot pitch every leverage inning that the Blue Jays have. Um, when you're down by three, you got to manage your bullpen differently than when you're tied or up by one. Uh, and, and these are things that, you know, the instant gratification people will never understand. And, and um, you have to, there are some times where you have to lose a battle to win a war over a six month season. And, you know, in order to make sure you're going to get your best out of everybody, you're going to get the best out of everybody as often as you can. 
Um, that's what you have to do. And Charlie is yeah. completely fine. Yeah. Yeah. I saw the Jays put out a stat today, which uh, just caught my eye in terms of Laddie. Um, so he's hit 87 home runs in his four, first 403 games, which matches his father, uh, which is an interesting, interesting stat. I mean, he's not had quite the blowout season as he had last year. Do you feel that's just a matter of time that he's going to, you know, pick the pace up? I mean, first of all, just just to give credit where credit's due, Hector Gomez came up with that. Um, the Blue Jays may have amplified it, but uh, but that was Hector Gomez, who is a reporter who I'm trying to find out where he works. Um, but anyway, it was it was a little bit more than that. It was um, he worked for. Um, Z101 Z101 um, but uh, but Hector Gomez came out with the uh, um, the stat that not only does Vladdy have 87 home runs but he also has a 363 on base percentage which is the exact same as what his father had uh, through 403 games which is insane um, I you know look he's he's going to be in the MVP conversation pretty much every year that he plays. He's, I don't know that he's going to have a 1000 OPS every year. He may not hit 48 home runs every year. You know, what he did last year was exceptional. Um, he almost won the triple crown. And I think that a lot of people say, okay, this, uh, that's now his baseline. He's going to do at least that every year. But again, not the way baseball works. Uh, guys have down years. Guys have, you know, even in but even in a down year for him, he will be an MVP candidate. And I, I just think that's going to happen. Look, he might. What's he on pace for uh, now? About forty homers or so. Um, so he might only hit forty homers, right? He might only hit two sixty. His OPS might only be eight eighty. That's okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he's yeah, but uh, he's still uh, an incredible hitter who can change a game every time he steps into the box. And that's the threat he brings every time. You know, that's what pitchers Absolutely. are going to be thinking about that in a moment he can he can turn it around. So, yeah, exciting stuff. I just want to um, just before we, we finish, just in terms of international stuff. Uh, so obviously we're podcast here from the UK. Uh, and how much a ball club would be aware of um, fans around the globe as opposed to, I mean, obviously the Jays are uniquely different to any other major league club because of the one team for Canada. MLB have announced that they've got some international games coming up. I know Mark Shapiro has mentioned that if it was right to come to England, it would seem like a good fit. How likely do you think that is? And uh, do you think that would be a good thing for the team? Do you think they would be well-received in coming across the pond and seeing us over here? I hope they would be well-received. And that's more of a question for you. <laughs> well, but, I mean, yes, we would receive them well. But I think in terms yeah. of, you know, the, the mindset in terms of the players coming to an international game, does that... Does that it's interesting. It's an interesting thought because you know, for a lot of for a lot of them, it might just be this is a pain in the ass. Yeah, uh, you know, fly this long and um, the time change and and all that stuff. But I would hope that they would embrace it for what it is, not just a chance to grow the game, 
internationally, but a chance to see an entirely different uh, part of the world and, and a wonderful culture and, you know, eat some great boiled foods. Uh, <laughs> England. Um, you know, I, I would, I would think that they would, uh, they, I would hope that they would really enjoy it. Um, well, as I, far I, as, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt no, you. I was just please. gonna say in terms of the 2019 series, when we had the Yankees and Red Sox across, uh, I think everybody to, to Penny would, would say that beyond the fan um, fans relating to the rank, uh, Yankees and Red Sox, the Blue Jays were by far the most represented ball club amongst the, the crowd. You know, there I, are a, a ton of Blue Jays fans here in the UK. I hope MLB noticed that because it feels like the Blue Jays really do tend to get short shrift from Major League Baseball when uh, jewel events happen. And, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that from 1994 to 2014, the Blue Jays were pretty much irrelevant on the Major League Baseball landscape as much as we, um, you know, knew and loved. Uh, and as much as we knew that, you know, this was a really good team a lot of the time, just bad luck and where they were and who they played and the playoff system. Um, they were sort of a, an afterthought. Um, we haven't had an all-star game here since 1991 and there are no plans as far as I know to, to have one anytime in the near future. Um, I feel like major league baseball would rather have the Yankees, the Red Sox, um, the Cubs, you know, Cardinals. Um, yeah. That, that was the series. That was the series right. that was marked up for 2020 it was the Cubs Cardinals, but yeah, obviously with the pandemic but, that all came to an end. The thing, you know, the thing is, I mean, I, I think they'd love to have the Dodgers out there too, but I don't think they would make the Dodgers do that. Uh, a to That's a long ball, way. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I hope that the Jays have a shot of playing in England. I think it will be incredible. Um, I, I would certainly love it. Assuming I got to go. I was going to say, um, you got, you got to come Mike. You know, I mean, that, that, that has to happen. Earth. Yeah, to yeah. See, I definitely. don't know where I am in the Toronto star pecking order. I don't know that I would, uh, I would be the top of the list to, to go, but I would love to. Um, I think that, um, I guess I would say I, I would be hopeful, but I wouldn't hold my breath. I'm not sure I would even be cautiously optimistic that, that, Major League Baseball would pick the Blue Jays to go, but I would really hope that they would give it some good thought. Because again, you know, I, I think that um, they're very cognizant, obviously, of their ratings back at home, and they do not get ratings for the Blue Jays. Like, you're guaranteed big ratings in two cities, at least for a national game, for yeah. any other team, just not the Blue Jays. Um so I think they're cognizant of that, um, but it would be it would be really really terrific if if the mm. Jays got a chance to play internationally. Well, we would love it. As I say, we've got a lot of us over here, expats, Canadians. You know, the whole whole mix. People gone on vacation like me, fell in love with the team, fell in love with the the game, and uh, I know they would be really really well received. And I just have to say thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, being so generous in making all the technology work. I know we had a few few, <laughs> few glitches along the way, but we, we got through. Uh, but Mike, really appreciate all that you've done and uh, your time this evening. Uh, hopefully you've found it joyful and uh, enjoyed uh, chatting with me. And uh, yeah, 
looking forward to hearing more about what you're doing. It'd be great just to, I know a million people will know where you are on Twitter, but let's just remind them, um, but also about your own pod as well, if you could just let us know a little bit about that. Well, first of all, let me say, uh, all the technical glitches were my fault. So thank <laughs> you for bearing with me and thank you for uh, however you're going to cut this together to make it work. I, I think that's great. Uh, absolutely. I enjoyed this. I'm happy to talk to you anytime. It, it was a, a blast. Thank you again for the kind words. I'm very happy to have had any sort of peace in your baseball uh, development of your your love for this game and, and learning about the game. So that's really, I'm, I'm honored to, um, to hear that. Um, I wish it were a million people who knew where I was on Twitter. Right now it's about 80,000, but if there are any more, um, you can find me on Twitter at Wilderness. Um, it's just Wilderness, but with an N instead of a D there. Uh, and you can hear my podcast uh, just by searching Deep Left Field. Obviously, if you're here, then you know about podcasts. Um, Deep Left Field is available on every, wherever anybody gets your podcasts or anything like that. Um, uh, it comes out every Thursday afternoon here, so evening there. Um, and the the current episode that's up right now is is a, a well first of all we've got ross stripling every week so one of the blue jays best starting pitchers joins me every week and he has a segment uh but also this week we've got getty lee who is the front man from rush uh the iconic not just canadian band but like rock and roll hall of fame and order of canada and all kinds of stuff and for the coming episode that will be coming out tomorrow after you launch this or or this thursday uh june 16th um as i mentioned it was tom cheek's birthday this week so i talked to dan shulman about tom dan and i have very similar experiences although he got to work with tom for decades and i only got him for two years um but but a wonderful conversation with dan shulman about mm. tom Cheek. we've got the regular segment with ross and I talk also to Francisco Placencia, who was the nice. scout signed Gabriel Moreno. So that's coming up. Uh, and plus 10 questions with some Blue Jay. I don't know. Every week we do a little 10, cute little 10 question segment. So that'll be there too. It's a, it's really a wonderful podcast. It's, it's the only one that has a Blue Jay come on every week. And it's, you know, it's a labor of love for me because it allows me to get back into that audio sphere that I really, really miss and that i mm. did for so so long sure. uh, which is another reason i love doing stuff like this so yeah nice feel free to ask yeah no great it, it is great listen i have listened to some of in fact you did one the other night uh that i was listening to where i think you were recording it about 1 30 in the morning or something um yeah, it's <laughs> just yeah. like oh my goodness this is hardcore i'm not doing that <laughs> that was uh, i think after i had just come back from st yeah. louis so yeah, you just traveled back yeah, yeah. took a while uh, to get settled <laughs> that's good stuff but yeah guys please make sure you uh get to listen to that because it might puts out some really really good stuff so thank you so much lovely to meet you lovely to spend some time with you and uh, we wish you well in all that you're doing mike and uh, yeah we'd love to catch up with you again at some other point and uh if the jays do get to come to the uk please come i'd love to buy you a beer if you come across and uh say hi it would be lovely to see you 
I would love to. Uh, it would be it would be tremendous. Just you know, another addition to the dreams come true to watch, uh, get to go cover a Blue Jays game overseas. But yeah, thank you uh, for having me. I appreciate the interest, and uh, it was an absolute pleasure to do this. And, and again, uh, happy to do it anytime. Thanks as much. Take care. Bye bye. The Red, White, and Blue Jays podcast is a production of Blue Jays Fans UK. If you've got a Blue Jays story to share, let us know. Email us at bluejaysfansuk at gmail.com. And follow along on Twitter and Instagram at bluejaysfansuk. I'm your announcer, Jim Langton. Thanks for listening.